Good morning. We had a wonderful weekend at the family retreat. We tried to count in uh, retrospect, and I think there were 104 different people who were there throughout the weekend. So thank you. It was a shot in the arm. It was fun. It was faith building. Uh, really benefited so much from David and Hiram's lessons and from the activities and the time spent together. You just have an opportunity to get to know each other better away from here more than you can when you're just by being here together. So it was, we're thankful to all who had a part in that. Um, I'm grateful for the, the men I get to work with. I appreciate Derek and the way he said that in his prayer, the ministry team. Uh, David has made such an impact. And I always love it when I hear uh, those who pray for the preachers. Pray for us by name and pray for all three of us by name. It means so much to us. And we're just very blessed to have David here. We're also blessed to have Hiram here with us. Um, there, he is too humble to say this on his own, and so I ask if I could have a moment to talk about this just before we get into the lesson. Um, Hiram has just written two books. Um, one is called Last Will and Testament. I hope that's going to be something that we'll study together here. It is a book-by-book survey of the New Covenant. He is pursuing um, uh, an advanced degree in Old Testament, and so he uh, has a, a deep grasp of God's Word in its original languages and in the study of it. And so you'll benefit from that, and I hope perhaps we'll get to study it. We grew up teaching our, or having uh, devotions with our kids, and we would read from them what they call Bible story books. Uh, and those are kind of hard to come by. Uh, and maybe you've, you've gone through all those if you have smaller children. He's written one called, Oh, How God Loves Us, a Bible story book. And you see a piece of paper because it's not released yet, but it will be released soon. And uh, you can ask Hiram about uh, more information about either one of those. We need to be in God's Word. That's our number one resource. But anything that can help us and point us to deeper study and more acceptable service to God is what we want to do. This weekend's retreat was focused on the theme of balanced families. And you balance families with faith and fun and fellowship. And the family that we had in mind in that particular setting was the church family. As we emphasize that the family retreat is about this family. The family of God that meets here. And how there's always more room in that family, but also how we need to see each other's family. There's the, in the Bible a resource that can help us to appreciate that fact. I suppose on a physical level you could say that I fell in love with this beautiful lady here on the second row on our first date. In fact, before I ever had the nerve, it took several days to work up the nerve to ask her out, I was uh, admired what I could see. And on our first date, we went down to the waterfront in Montgomery, the Palmans know all about that, and uh, there on our first date we talked about our shared values and what she felt about things, and I, I, I fell in love with the perspective that she had, but I believe that I fell in love with her heart on one of our early dates. We were out at a place called Vaughn Park, the Vaughn Park area, and as we were going about, we were talking about the songs that we loved from our childhood, and we would share each one of those, and she talked about a song that meant so much to her, and the words were, the world all around me has now no allure. It's wisdom, it's vain, it's pleasure brings pain. I seek a foundation that's steadfast and sure. I'll put Jesus first in my life. In 31 plus years of knowing her, that's been the way that she's lived her life. And I believe that's because of something that she grasped, but I believe that all of us need to grasp. And that is that it's so important to put Jesus first 
in our lives. You give evidence of that by your being here today, your spiritual interest. We're challenged to do that day after day when we're away from here and we find ourselves on our own. And I love how the New Testament especially gives us so much guidance that points us in that direction. You think about the greatest sermon ever preached that Jesus inserts that idea when he says you're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that everything else in life lines up under that principle. There's an entire letter that points us in that direction. And I love how that emphasis is given there. In the letter that Paul writes to the church at Colossians, he talks about how he has uh, rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. For by him were all things made. In, uh, in heaven and earth, things that are visible and in, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were made by Him and for Him. And He is the head of the, the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. There in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 through 18, even in the beginning of the letter, the Apostle Paul is setting out an idea that he is going to show throughout the letter. And that is that Jesus needs to have first place in our lives. Even in this particular section, he gives us three reasons why. There is his heroic work that we see in verse 13 and 14. He rescued us. Do you see yourself as one who is in need, who is dying, and who was heading for a terrible outcome? And he rescued us. And not only that, but he put us in a safe place. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He forgave us from our sins. That's, that's that heroic work that he did. And then the Apostle Paul focuses us on his supernatural identity. In verse 15 through 17, and what is that identity? There's his place as the creator. In his supremacy over the creation, there's the fact that he sustains us. He holds all things together. That is, he made it all happen. But after he put us here, he made sure that he could take care of us as long as this earth continues. And then I think about the fact that there's this authoritative position. I should put him first because of that, verse 18. And what position does he hold? He is the head of the church. In everything where there's a question, where there's a matter of what shall we do and what shall we emphasize, we're not left to our own devices. He says, listen to me, the body of Christ, its head, he directs. That's his position. But I also love the fact that there's the hope in his position. He is the first one to overcome death, never to die again. And it's out of all of that that the Apostle Paul says he needs to have first place in everything. And as I appreciate that, I also understand that that means that he needs to have first place in every part of my life. There's no part that's unaddressed or or uncovered. And so as I get to the second part of the letter... The part where Cooper was reading so well from a moment ago. In Colossians chapter 3, he begins that second half of the letter by talking about what a raised up life looks like. You have been buried with Christ and raised with Him to walk in newness of life. What difference should that make? How should that impact and change me? Not just as I come out of the water, but as I live the rest of my life. 
It should impact, it should improve my relationship with Him. Do you notice where He starts? It's usually where He starts, and that is the relationship that we have with Him. We're raised with Him. We seek His things. We're hidden in Him. But you see, it's not going to stay there. As I work on that relationship with Christ, that the ways that I can forge a closer union with Him, it's also going to show itself in my relationship to my daily conduct. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5 through verse 11. But then, you see, as I am growing more like Christ and trying to be more like Him in every way, it's going to inevitably impact my relationship with my spiritual brothers and sisters, my family. You see, so verse 12 through 17 talks about how we interact and relate with one another. And then it gets more personal within that particular sphere. It it goes down to my relationship in my home. Colossians 3, verse 18 through 21. And then when I leave my home, when I leave church on Sunday, and I go out to my home, and then I leave my home on Monday morning, it's going to impact how I relate to my co-workers. You see that in Colossians 3, verse 23, through chapter 4 and verse 1. And as I think about that, then I even broaden my scope. It's going to affect my relationship with the lost. My neighbors, those that are around me who are not yet in Christ. Colossians 4, verse 2 through 6. And so as I look back at that and I drill down on that, that's my relationship with my God, myself, my church, my marriage, my parents, my children, my co-workers, and my world. Doesn't that take in just about every relationship that you're going to have in this life? That being the case, I feel like in this weekend we focused a lot on um, that relationship that we need to build with God and that relationship that we need to build with one another as the family of God. I want to round that out and look at some other relationships that Paul looks at. And he gives a word to each one of those groups that he addresses. When he speaks to wives and he says, if you want to put Jesus first in your life, the word that he gives is the word submission. You know, you ever found out how there's some things that just don't fit right? If you have tools, and not to pick on Gary, and he probably wasn't the worst offender, but we had all these tools, and especially sockets. And you know how there's sockets that are English and sockets that are metric, but sometimes you had an English bolt head, and there's no English size to fit, so you get a metric size that's the closest. And you ever notice how it doesn't quite always fit right, and so you put a little extra work on it, and sometimes you mess up the head on that bolt because it's just not quite a right fit. Or maybe it is that you have seen some of the plumbing jobs, like some that I might do, where you have galvanized and copper tried to fit that together, or metal and plastic, and sometimes it's just not the tight, secure fit, and it can make a difference. Or maybe there's that paint in your wall from 1968, that beautiful shade of green, and you want to match it, so you go down to Home Depot and you find something close. You see, sometimes there are those things that get close to it, but they just don't fit right. Paul uses a word here to talk about the wife's relationship to her husband. And he says that you need to do that which is fitting. It's a word he uses other places. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4, it's not fitting for somebody who is a Christian to use coarse language. And and that language that is, is not, it's silliness, it's foolish. God says it's not fitting. It doesn't fit right. And then he talks to Philemon and he says, in view of the debt that you owe to me, what's fitting for you is to forgive your runaway slave. Philemon uh, verse 8. 
So what's fitting for a wife is to be in subjection to her husband. And it's said in three places. It's said right here. It's said in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, as, as unto the Lord. And then in 1 Peter 3 verse 1 and 2, for even in those situations where a woman might be married to a non-Christian by her chaste and reverent behavior, she may win her husband without a word. In all of those indications, what Paul and Peter are saying is there's a relationship that you've got to incorporate. There's a way that you relate, wives, to your husbands. Why would he say this? Because perhaps it's not the natural way that a woman might think about how she would relate to her husband. And it's not a quality that her culture and her friends and her co-workers are going to encourage. And so the Apostle Paul is pointing her to what helps her to put Christ first in her life. There's so much misunderstanding on this particular subject about what it means to be in subjection. And I think this is why that Jesus talks about it so often. In John chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus teaches very clearly that he was equal with the Father. John 5:18. But then in John 14 and verse 28, he says, The Father is greater than I. He willingly placed himself in the eternal scheme of redemption uh, in subjection to the Father and His will. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through verse 9. He says, I'm God. Or Paul says it for him in Philippians 2 and verse 6. But he humbled himself and he emptied himself. And God highly exalted him. Philippians 2, 7 through 9. Listen, it does not mean, and if you've been married for any length of time, you already know this, that the husband is smarter It doesn't even naturally mean that he's the better leader. But it means that God who has created male and female knows our greatest needs. And perhaps it can be said that man's greatest need is to feel respected by his wife. And that woman's greatest need is to feel adored and loved by her husband. And the God who made us says, look, I want everything to work as smoothly and as productively and as enjoyable as possible. And so for this reason, wives, if you want to put Jesus first in your life, be in subjection to your husband. Then he turns around to the husbands and he challenges the husband equally. And by the way, we remind ourselves as we look in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 that wives and husbands are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a mutual submission to one another and a mutual submission to God's will. Perhaps it was that Paul anticipated as he's moved by the Holy Spirit that men might misunderstand this and they might run roughshod over their wives and they might abuse this passage. And so Paul speaks in Colossians 3 in verse 19 and he says to the wife, to the husband, you are to love your wives. If you're going to put me first in your relationship, you've got to love her. Now, various translations say it different ways. That your translation may say, husbands love your wives and do not be bitter against them. I believe the better translation is, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I don't know that he's saying that you are to watch yourself and by loving you'll avoid bitterness. I believe he's saying that you need to so conduct yourself in your relationship with your wife. So focus your energies on what she needs in that relationship that she will not be bitter against you. But you know, either way, I believe that the kind of love he's calling for will resolve both of those things. 
In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 33, making a different point, the Apostle Paul says that the man that is married concerns himself with how he may please his wife. And this isn't just an emotional exercise. The Apostle Paul tells us all about that when he says that love is patient, love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act in a way that's unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so Paul is not just telling us how superior his way is in the post-miraculous age as it was to the miraculous age. He's making a point that husbands can benefit from as we define love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It gives us a picture of what God wants from us in that relationship. If we want to honor Him, we're going to love her. I don't know if you remember this, not about maybe 10 years ago, there was a, a shooting, a mass shooting in a Safeway grocery store in Tucson, Arizona. And the most famous victim of that shooting was a congresswoman by the name of Gabriella Gaffords. You may remember that. She was permanently injured from, as, as a result of this. But there were six people who died and 13 who were injured in that accident. And one of the ones that was killed was the man you see on the screen, the 76-year-old retired construction worker by the name of Dorwin Stoddard. Dorwin and his wife, Maybe, were there to see the congresswoman and were in the store and uh, Maybe heard what she thought were fireworks, but Dorwin knew exactly what it was. And he pulled her down and he fell on top of her. Both of them were members of the Mountain Avenue Church of Christ there in Tucson. And Maybe went up to her preacher that next Sunday and said that Dorwin gave up his life for me. And I believe that if I were to ask every man in this auditorium this morning, if that was the only option that you had, would you do what Dorwin did for Maybe? I guarantee you, at least I hope so, that we would all say I would do that. But do you realize that what God is asking for is even more than that? It's not just being able to go to the extent that Jesus did in order to protect the church. But you look at Jesus' love for the church and what did it cause him to do? He expended his energy and he expended his efforts toward her. And that's what the Lord wants us to do, men, in our relationship with our wives. To be so focused. I imagine... If we could have an anonymous survey and ask perhaps some ladies who have all the material needs and wants in their lives met, if they would exchange that, if they feel like that they don't have that love and adoration, I I suppose they would all say yes. Our Lord is giving us help in our relationships because He wants them to be the very best that they can be. And that's true of the next word that our, our Lord through Paul gives. For children to keep Jesus first in their lives... His word for you is obedience. You know, as we think about this topic of obedience of children, their parents, we may think that that's one of those lesser subjects to deal with, but it's not. If you look in Romans chapter 1, verse 30 and 32, it's the sign of someone whose mind leads them to do those things which are worthy of death. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 says that this is a sign of difficult times in the end of days. That when we have this mindset... It's important to God that children be obedient to parents. But it's something that we say in this open forum because parents' children need us to help them in that regard. The experts out there will sometimes redefine what is simply disobedience with things like uh, um, oppositional defiant disorder. Disorder. 
or antisocial behavioral disorder or emotional defiance disorder. And I realize that those are real diagnoses and there are cases where that happens. But I wonder, sometimes is it not just that as parents we don't engage in the battle of wills and expend the energy that it takes to help our children to obey? It's important to God. Was it important to God under the old law? In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, the Bible says, Honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is appealing. That's the fifth commandment. He's appealing to the second part of that to say that this is the first commandment with a promise in Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. And so in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, you'll have statements made about the importance of honoring parents and not dishonoring parents through disobedience. That The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself is a disgrace to his mother, Proverbs 29 and verse 15. And our Lord picks that up and He carries that principle into the New Testament. In Matthew 15, 4 and Matthew 19 and verse 19. And then you have Paul coming along and saying, listen, this is important because of what's associated with disobedience. Disobedience is synonymous with un- unrighteousness, Luke one seventeen, or going after your own thoughts, Isaiah 65 and verse 2, failure to follow instruction, Isaiah 30 and verse 9, God saying, I want children to grow up with the practice of being obedient, because there's going to be a society that is calling for them to be rebellious and defiant. Oh, parents, we have an important responsibility. Our responsibility is to teach what's right and wrong. And young people, when you're in your parents' home, it's for you to do what they tell you as is appropriate in the Lord. But then he gives a word to the other side. What I love is in all these relationships, he's giving us both sides. He he balances it out for us. And he speaks to the parents. And he says, if you want to put Jesus first in your life, the way that you do that is by encouraging. I know he speaks in the negative. He says, do not discourage your children. In the Ephesians epistle, he says, fathers, don't provoke your children. You notice he speaks to the fathers. Men, we're not passive. We're not to be disengaged in the process. We're to be very involved. But the principle applies to both father and mother throughout the Bible. It says, don't discourage your children. Don't provoke them. And so, as I look at that, I see the other side. That he wants me to encourage them. That parent-child relationships are not just a list of rules and regulations. There is a demeanor that I'm to have in carrying that out. I'm going to encourage them. I'm not going to push down on them so hard to manipulate and control them. I'm not going to just show my affection to them when they're doing when they're winning or when they're succeeding. But what about if they're trying and failing? I need to understand that I am giving them their first picture of the Heavenly Father. And I want to reflect Him and that relationship as much as I can. And so in the decisions that I make and the example that I leave, I want them to know full well that I want them to be happy and I want them to be confident. I want them to be courageous. But I don't want them to be happy as an end in itself. But I want them to see that happiness comes in service. I want them to have confidence, not in themselves, but a confidence in God. See, God is laying down for us a blueprint to help us in our relationships. He does the same in this next relationship. You may say, well, a minute, Neil, this is slaves and masters. But he gives those employees a word. And that is that they are to find themselves as those who serve their employers. 
Did you know that between a third and a half of all Romans were slaves? And it's hard for us, as was recently said, not to think about this without thinking about American slavery in the, in the past century. But there, the rules were different. There were more freedoms. There were more abilities of those under that system. And as such, it seems to be a great parallel to what we face in the workforce. God says, of all relationships, I want you to do this. That I want you to behave towards your employer, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. And so he mentions the Lord four times in those few verses. You're doing what you do because of your relationship to God. And so you're going to be compliant. Verse 22, you're going to do what's given to you that's right on the job. You're going to, to do, follow the orders of the boss. Think about how much that stands out in our culture today. Not only that, you're going to have an honest work ethic. You're not just going to be working hard when the boss is looking. You're going to be working just as hard when he's not. And then you're going to do your work heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. He's wanting us to show a countercultural picture to those in the workforce. And then he turns around and he speaks to the employers. He says, there's a word for you too. You are to be fair. You're to not be partial at all. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1. And he tells us why. He says, you have a master in heaven just as he does. And so you're not going to use your position of authority to bully, to manipulate, or to control, to threaten, to fire them. As an employer, you're not going to ever stand between your employee and the cross of Calvary. You want to always be pointing to him and not hiding him. And then there's the last, the most encompassing. He speaks to all Christians and he says, if you want to put Jesus first in your relationships, then you've got to minister, you've got to serve those in the world around you. Throughout all of this, we could say, look how Jesus reflects the truth of this. How Jesus shows the principles that we're talking about. And certainly Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19 and verse 10. It's what drove him to speak to and help the crowds. Mark 6, 32 and 33. He was willing to speak to the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And he always seemed to know just what to say on that occasion. And he says, Christians, if you're going to put Jesus first in your ministering to the world... I want you to do the same thing. And he gives three elements. He tells it, first of all, that it's prayer. Soul winning involves so many different components. And one of those components is prayer. I can't help but think about what Samuel told the people in 1 Samuel 12 and verse 23. They had asked for a king like all the nations around them. They rejected God as king. God sent thunder and rain. And uh, uh, Saul stood before the people and he said, God forbid that I should cease or sin against God in ceasing to pray for you. How many opportunities are we missing? How many Bible studies are failing because we're not praying for one another? May I encourage you in your daily prayer life, maybe consider do this for 30 days. Pray as specifically as you can in this congregation for your brothers and sisters and yourself to find somebody to talk to, Jesus, to them about Jesus with. And then he talks about your conduct. And what he says in that is that you're going to walk with wisdom toward outsiders. We're not just to consider, is this action, is this word, is this attitude, is it right or wrong, but is it wise? Will it help me to walk with wisdom toward outsiders? Am I taking the advantage of the opportunity that I need to? And then there is my speech, my words. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to be very careful that my words are judicious, delicious, and gracious. I'm going to be very careful that my speech reflects Him. 
Pretty simple, right? Look at the relationships in which you find yourself. I love how our God is always calling us higher. He's always asking us to make today better than yesterday and tomorrow better than today. And as I look into each one of those relationships, what I'm grateful for is that my life is hidden in Him and He is there beside me to help me in all the relationships in which I find myself. He's given me resources in which I can find the strength to do it. The fellow that you see there, incredible story. According to his national documents and whatever official documents he could get in his country, he was born on December 31st, 1870. That was three weeks before Germany became the modern nation that it is. Five years after the end of the Civil War. The United States was less than a century old at that time. 33 years before the first airplane flight. You get the idea. Ulysses S. Grant was in the White House when he was born. He died in 2017 when Donald Trump was in the White House. That's a bit of a span. He lived 147 years. What do you see in a century and a half of time? What changed? But to put it in perspective, Methuselah lived almost seven times longer than that. He was a contemporary with Adam and Shem, that's 1,600 years whose lives he touched, what history he was a part of. But he died. You know, I, I suppose it's the case that we feel like. I feel that way. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine the thought that I won't always be here. We don't think about the fact that this life comes to an end. But Mbogotho says it did. So does Methuselah. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God that gave it. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. It's in the life that He gives us on this earth that He says, I want you to make the most of the decisions and the relationships in which you find yourself, and I want you to put me first. That begins in a most beautiful way. He says, I'm going to give the life of my Son... And in response to that, I want you to give your life to me. How do you do it? You know, the Apostle Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 2. We're buried with him by baptism, raised by the operation, our faith in God. And as we're risen with him, we walk this life that we've been talking about today. How do you do what Paul talks about in Colossians 2, 11 and 12? It's filled in the New Testament with the examples and the teachings of it. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Do you find yourself in a position where you're ready to change your mind that leads to that change of action and repentance? Are you ready to confess that Jesus is Lord, that you uh, see Him as the Son of God? And are you ready to imitate His death, burial, and resurrection? If you're ready to do that, maybe not publicly, maybe you'd like to do it privately, we would love to help you. But I encourage you, life is precious. Let's do it while there's life. If you're a child of God and you need to respond to the invitation this morning for prayers for encouragement or repentance, we'd urge you to come right now as we gather, we stand and sing.